right, if you'll be opening your Bible to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. And I thought that preparing a message at the beach would be, you know, a nice experience. And I'm not saying it wasn't. Um, But it was different. And I got distracted a lot as uh, watching the water. I still kind of see it in my dreams at nighttime. And listening, you know, to the waves. Then once all the, all the people leave and all the noise, and you can really hear. And uh, so if I kind of stare off into the distance tonight, you know that's kind of where I'm at. But I promise I'll come back. I love the mountains just like I love the beach, and uh, of course I grew up around the beach, so I'm kind of used to it, but anyway, Psalm 90. So interestingly enough, last time I was up here, I shouted out Psalm 90 was a good psalm that we should look at when Pastor was asking for psalms, and so he decided to give me Psalm 90. So let's first read the psalm and um, talk about what's happening here, and then we'll we'll get into it. Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you're God. You turn man to destruction, and you say, return, O children of man, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it's past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like sheep, excuse me, they are like asleep. In the morning, uh, they are like grass which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it cuts down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger and By your wrath, we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. For who knows the power of your anger, for as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So the superscription in this psalm tells us that Moses was the author of this psalm. Now, it's the only psalm that we know of 
wherein Moses is cited as the author. Uh, some scholars also think that he wrote uh, Psalm 91. We don't know for sure because Psalm 90 and 91 kind of flow together. Um, and we're not exactly told, it's not as crystal clear as to when exactly this psalm was written. But as you read through it, as you read through the internal contents of the psalm, it leads us to believe it was written during some kind of transition, some, kind, some, some time when there was a transition in, in Israel's history. Now, a time when one generation was passing off the scene and another new generation was rising up. And that new generation needed some insight. They needed some leadership. I like to think that in Moses' lifetime, this was where the nation of Israel was wandering in the wilderness. And in fact, there's a lot of details in this psalm, and we're not going to attach them to that, but there's a lot of details in this psalm that we could attach to the wandering in the wilderness. The nation of Israel had rejected God. Remember the story? They had believed that God was not capable enough to get them inside the land. And they sent out the 12 spies to spy out the land. And the two spies came back and said, we think we can take the land. God is on our side and we can do it. But you had 10 other guys, 10 other men, 10 other leaders of 10 other tribes of Israel. By the way, their names are actually in Scripture. I don't know their names because... We remember Joshua and Caleb's names, right? Not the other 10, but their names are actually written in Scripture. And they gave a bad report, and they gave an evil report, the text says. And because of their unbelief, Israel was sentenced to wander in the wilderness. For 40 days, God said, for every day, you get a year to wander in the wilderness. So 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. A new generation is born in the wilderness they need to be instructed about how to use their time wisely, how to use their gifts and abilities for God's glory. Put yourself in their shoes. Maybe you're a mother or father and you've just heard the news that you're not gonna get to go into the promised land. And you've heard the news that you're gonna wander in the wilderness for 40 years, but you're never gonna see the land because in that 40 year time period, you're gonna die. You don't know when. You don't know if it's going to be five years, 10 years, 18 years, 39 years. You don't know. You have three kids. You got a fourth one on the way. You want to make sure that your children don't make the same mistakes you make or you made, I should say. You have 40 years to teach them. God's way is the best way. It's the right way. It's the only way. By the way, this sounds like the parent's dilemma in every generation, doesn't it? Well, this psalm itself is broken up. So I want you to keep that context in your mind, okay? I really believe that's the context uh, that's happening here in Psalm 90. That's what's going on. But this psalm itself is broken up into three simple categories or three simple sections. Verses 1 to 6, which speaks about God's eternality. Verses 7 through 11, which speak about God's wrath. And then uh, verses 12 through the end of the psalm, which speak about God's mercy. So it's kind of broken up into three simple ones. And I just want to walk through the psalm with you and pick out some things. The first thing before we even get into the psalm, I circled uh, in verse 1, in verse 2, in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 6, in verse 9, in verse 10, in verse 12, 13, 14. All the references to time. Look at verse 1. 
generations. Verse two, everlasting to everlasting. Verse four, thousand years, yesterday, a watch in the night. Verse five, the morning. Verse six, the morning and the evening. Verse nine, all our days, our years. Verse 10, the days. Verse 12, our days. How long, verse 13? Our days, verse 14. The days, verse 15, the years. So you get the point, right? That Moses here is reflecting back on time and how time is so transient. But let's look at these verses, each one, one by one. Verse one says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Isn't that a good first verse? You've been our dwelling place in all generations. It's a metaphor for a place of protection. The phrase dwelling place can also be translated as refuge. God has been our refuge in all generations. In fact, in Psalm 91, there's a couple other references in verse two and verse four and verse nine to the Lord who is our refuge. And no matter where our circumstances may take us, in any generation that we're found, God says he is always our dwelling place. There's always there for us. There has never been a time where he wasn't there for us. It speaks to his eternality, and so he is eternal. Uh, before the mountains, verse 2, were brought forth, or you had ever formed the world, the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you know, you are God. For the mountains, creation, God was there. From eternity past to eternity future, God is there. And all of our ups and downs of life, our security is in him. And we all know that life is fleeting and life is fragile, but we can also find comfort in the fact that God is always present. In whatever generation we find ourselves, he's always present. But our comfort doesn't just rely on the fact that he's everlasting. It must rest in the fact that he has a perpetual dwelling place. I like the way my NLT, which I brought here tonight, and by the way, if you ever get a chance to read through the Psalms and want a different look at the Psalms, then read through the Psalms in the NLT. I think it will change uh, your viewpoint of the Psalms. It will help you appreciate the Psalms even more. But Psalm 90, verse one in the NLT says, Lord, through all the generations, you have been our home. And I think that's um, dwelling place, our home, because our home is with him. Heaven is great because heaven is fantastic. Heaven is awesome. Heaven is amazing because Jesus is there. And wherever Jesus is, that's where our home is. And so he says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or even formed the world. You were there. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. But then the text kind of changes a little bit here in verse 3, kind of drastic. He says, you turn man to destruction. <laughs> very, very blatant here. And you say, return, O children of man. You know, this is a reference here uh, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. Remember? For dust you are and dust you will return, God said. Physical death was a result of a fall, returning back to dust. You know, people may think of the brevity of life when everything is going well, but when death comes, 
it's often quick. When death comes, it's unexpected. It's always unexpected, <laughs> correct? We never know. Now, sometimes we do things that might make death come quicker by making silly mistakes and foolish mistakes. But nonetheless, um, death always comes quickly. And then verse 4 gets even more depressing. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it's past, and like a watch in the night. And for God, the passing of time is so much different. And again, it's kind of reflecting back, and since he is not constrained to time, then technically time isn't even a factor for him. Um, but the text uses two similes to help us understand God's perspective. It says, for a thousand years and like a watch in the night. Such a large amount of time passes so quickly, a thousand years. And I think he's kind of reflecting back on the patriarchs, remember? A lot of the patriarchs who had lived to be 900 years old, Adam 930 maybe, or 10, Methuselah 960, they almost made it to the, you know, a millennium. They almost made it to a thousand years. Can you imagine it's your 900th birthday? <laughs> Let alone the candles on the cake, you know. I guess after a century, you'd start doing things differently. But then trying to remember something. But yet, you know, their minds had the capacity to do that. Because some things you get in your mind, you never forget. Can you imagine all the things, all the memories? You know, we just had, uh, uh, um, I can't remember his name. He just passed away uh, uh, a week and a half ago. Uh, yeah, yeah, Woody Williams, yeah. Um, the things that he saw for, for being as old as he was in World War II and, and just the memories. But can you imagine 900 years? You're like, well, I don't remember that. It's kind of fuzzy. I'm, okay, we'll give you that. It's been 900 years. Let's give an excuse. You know, it's okay. But 900 years. And for God, it's just like another day. A thousand years is just like another day. Or uh, he says a watch in the night. A watch in the night is a four-hour time period in nighttime. Uh, so very, very small, very, very insignificant. The point seems to be that in the eternal plans of God, human life is almost so brief, it's almost just insignificant. And the same could be said of our planet Earth, you know, in the totality of God's universe. We can spend our lifetimes exploring just the vastness of God's creation here on Earth. I mean, land, sea, and above, all around, mountains, deserts, forests, oh my, you know. The whole earth, we can spend our lifetime just exploring and discovering, but what about the rest of the universe? I mean, it's just a drop in the bucket. I mean, you think of your address in in, in the universe. Do you know, you might know your address on planet Earth, but do you know your address in the universe? So I live on Pea Ridge in Huntington, West Virginia, the United States of America, the Earth, our current solar system, the Orion Arm, the Milky Way Galaxy, the local group, and the Virgo supercluster, and then finally the universe. That's my address. Yeah. And the irony here or the love, I guess we should say, is that God himself decided to robe himself in flesh and become a man for something insignificant 
you know, as the earth. Our lives may not seem significant in comparison to the totality of what God created. And by the way, that's just what God created. That's not who God is or understanding anything beyond that. That's just simply the fact of what he created. A psalm was at 19 that says, The heavens declare the works of God. The earth shows the work of his hands. The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth shows the work of his hands. Um, he spent all of his creative work, it seems, on the earth, and then he just, everything else is just for fun <laughs> up in the universe. Then look at verses five and six. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. Not asleep. I guess you could say they are asleep. Sleep is a reference to death. In the morning they are like grass which grows up. The they here is mankind. You carry them away like a flood. Remember the flood? Everybody was destroyed. And God decided to start over with Noah and his family. Or a downpour. We might think of a, might think of a downpour because a downpour here leads to a flood which can take you away. Um, and thinking back, back to the flood where God wiped off the earth and started over with Noah and his family. Grass here it says, which grows up. You can mow your grass in the morning and by the evening it's already starting to grow again. I mean, this is the idea here. Um, like grass that sprouts in the morning only to wither by the evening. Human life is brief. We might flourish for a time, a really brief time, but in the end, our life has ended and it gets withered away. So now you should be depressed. I'm doing a, trying to get you really depressed tonight by... Uh, what's here in this psalm. But when you, when you look at the brevity of life and when you look how transient it is, how, how temporary, how he says here you have, we'll get to it in just a minute, you've got 70, 80 years maybe if everything's well, 90, 100 if, 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 if everything's going really well. And some people live 11 decades and 12 decades. We hear of examples, but such a small amount of time in comparison to all of eternity. And he says, consider this. Consider eternity. Consider this time. Um, and, and we know life is brief. We know that we only have a certain amount of time. Uh, but that fact doesn't help it become more bearable. <laughs> it's hard enough for us to face our mortality. But it's even harder when we come to terms with our own sinful condition which is what he talks about next, about God's wrath. So it translates into a little more personal tone, okay? So God is eternal. God is far above us. God's created time for us. He's not bound by time. God is, God is just, just the eternal nature of God here is what Moses is trying to say. And then he says, now let's look at our own sinful nature. It makes it even more depressing. Look at verse 7. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. And the Bible makes it clear that sin is the cause of all suffering and death one way or another. We know that from Scripture. However, the text seems to focus on a particular sin, we might say, one that had destructive consequences for the nation as a whole. And this level of intensity might just be found in the wilderness wanderings. I mean, think about that. The nation wants relief from God's anger so that what's left of their lives might be 
different. I mean, think about Moses. He didn't get to go into the promised land. He led the people out of Egypt, led them up to the edge of the promised land. The people brought back a bad report. And as a result, they couldn't go into the land. Moses didn't get to go into the land either. For 40 years, he had to be with, these, with the nation of Israel in the wilderness, knowing that they'd all die off before they actually got into the land, knowing that he'd have to give leadership to someone else and they would get to go into the land and enjoy the land. The nation wants relief from God's anger. It says, by your wrath we are terrified, verse seven. Verse eight, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. That's pretty powerful. You know, even our most secret sins, we're reminded here, are laid before the Lord. We're only fooling ourselves when we think that we can hide them. How, how can you hide your sins from what we've just seen in verses 1 through 6 about God's eternality? You can't. You just can't. And you're only fooling yourselves when you think you can hide them. And it seems like that, that from the text here, it seems that God's wrath against Israel has continued for a long time, reducing their lives to kind of like a moan or a whimper. For all our days have passed away in your wrath, and we finish our years as a sigh, as a moan. Today, we don't have to endure God's wrath for a continued period of time. Jesus placed himself between us and God's wrath, and of course, he took the full brunt of God's wrath on the cross, so we wouldn't have to experience it. But God's displeasure or God's discipline might be on your life because of some habitual sin or some unconfessed sin, and that might be what's causing you to moan or sigh or ask questions. And that's why confession of sin is such an important part of your Christian life, because when you confess your sins, you're telling God that you value your relationship with him. It's important to him, and it's important to you. You're looking into your actions and thoughts to see what you've messed up. Because the problem's always with us. It's never with him. Verses one through six remind you it's never with him. It's always with us. For all our days have passed, verse nine, away in your wrath, we finish our years like a sigh. I don't know about you, but I don't want to finish my years with a sigh or a moan or, or whatever we might translate that, that, that verse to be. In the verses 10 and verse 11, it continues, the days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength, they're 80 years. But yet their boast is only in labor and sorrow and pain, for soon it's cut off and we fly away. Maybe that's where that song, I'll fly away, came from. We'll fly away. The point is that mankind has a 100% mortality rate. Pretty simple, right? Our lifespan might be 70, might be 80, might be 90, might live to 100, 110, 120. I think some have lived longer, maybe one or two. Nowadays, we know before the flood they lived. But all these years are lived, Moses says, in trouble and sorrow. Just gets worse and worse the older you get. Moses himself lived to be 120 years old. But did you think about the last 40 years of Moses' life were wandering in the wilderness? 
the last 40. You're going to be really depressed by the time the evening ends tonight. You know, this week I was reading an article, um, and I read a lot of different uh, things. You'd be surprised what, uh, what your pastors read. But I just um, was reading this article. I get some things uh, from a science magazine in my inbox, just curious things that kind of um, interest me. And I was reading an article where there had been an uptick in the discussion of using psychedelics in medical treatment, okay? Psychedelics being things like LSD. Um, and we're not recommending it. Talk to your own healthcare provider about this, your doctor. We're not recommending any of that from here. You talk to your doctor about that. And what are psychedelics? <clears throat> um, well, uh, there are competent medical people I know that can explain this better. But in my understanding, psychedelics basically turn down this thing in our brain called our default mode network, okay, our DMN. And it's the thing that happens uh, when we're not focused on anything in particular, okay? The default mode network is a default state your brain goes into every time you finish a task before you start another, okay? And for those of us, for those of us who don't bother our brain with too many tasks, this is the default state of our brain. It's in most of the time, okay? So our <clears throat> things like our internal monologues, you know, when we talk to ourselves and get ourselves worked up about something, arise from our default mode network. We pass judgments in our minds on ourselves and the people around us. Within the default mode network, we oscillate between past, present, and future, telling ourselves either, good job, you did this well, or what on earth did you think when you said that to that person? Mind-wandering is a core part of our existence, and this happens in the default mode network. We put experiences together and form our own storylines, good or bad. And yes, sometimes, most times, our mind wanders a little too much and prevents us from focusing on what we need to do. But a lot of mind wandering <clears throat> is associated with increased unhappiness. And there are there has been some increased research done in using psychedelics to help with that. And there are three categories of use that are being discussed for psychedelics and medical therapy. The first is trauma. You know, people might not want to talk about some of the trauma they faced. They might not be able to talk about some of the trauma they faced. A second one is anxiety and depression that kind of resists treatment. Anxiety and depression have been treated, and, and it's just not working. And then they've tried various sorts of treatments, but they're not working for anxiety and depression. And a third one, and a big one, psychedelics here, is for those who fear death. They're preoccupied with it. What's going to happen moments after it? How am I going to feel? You know, even as Americans, we love control and predictability. You know, if you love those things, the ultimate threat is your approaching death, of which you have no control. Of course, we as believers, we know what's going to happen in death. We know our eternal destination. But the fact of the matter is that every human being is destined to die. And our brief lifespan is spent under the judgment of God because we all have a sin nature unless we find mercy. 
unless we find mercy. And people will do whatever they can to escape that feeling of thinking about that. Nobody wants to sit here and think about that. That's what this psalm is kind of helping us to reflect on because sometimes it's important for us to think about that. Sometimes it's not fun to go to a funeral where you're confronted with death or you're confronted with something. It's not fun to do those things, but this psalm is reminding us that there is value in it. There's value in it. Look at what verse 12 says. How do we make every day count? We know life is short. We need to make sure that every day counts. How do we do that? We do it by asking the Lord for help. And we do that through prayer. And it's no uh, coincidence that the last seven or eight verses, five or six verses, verses 12 down through verse 17 of this psalm is in the form of a prayer. There are at least three parts of this prayer. I guarantee you can find more uh, if you study the psalm on your own. But here are the three that I found most important. Verse 12. The first one is this. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So how are we supposed to make sense of the fact that, you know, we might have 70 years, we might have 80 years, we might have more. We all look, those of us who are older look back and say, I really want what I did to count. Those of us who are young say, I really want to make my life count. So how are we supposed to take a look at this fact that um, life is fleeting and life is transient? What are we supposed to do? Well, verse 12, the first thing it says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Phrase number means more than simply just counting. It doesn't mean, okay, let me put them up on the, you know, on the calendar. Okay, I got that number. What did I do this day? What did I do this day? It doesn't mean that at all. I mean, I guess you could do that. It includes planning, carrying out, evaluating activities that took place in that period of time. It's important for us to plan how to use our time on earth how can we best use our time for the cause of Christ and his church? When we step back and take stock, we number our days. We actually, it says, we actually gain or receive a heart of wisdom, as the text says. We learn what is important to God and what is not. We learn what is frivolous and what is not. We learn what is valuable and what is not. And the idea from wisdom is that, is that you have learned a skill, okay? Learn some kind of skill from wisdom. So we could say that numbering our days will gain us a heart that is skillful. We all want a skillful heart. Now, we have lots of skills that you might have trained to be skillful in something. You might have gone school, uh, college, to trade school, to wherever, to gain a skill, a heart that is skillful here is a heart that is disciplined. It's devout, it's productive. It's a heart that is morally and ethically skilled. It only comes through time. Uh, discernment might be the best word to characterize this first part of the prayer. And we need discernment in a mighty way in the world in which we live in because we're constantly bombarded <laughs> with just stuff. The only way that you and I can discern what is important to God is by spending time with him each day. So you take stock in that. You step back and you look at your days. What have I done? 
what, analyze what, what's happened the last couple of years, what's happened the last couple of months. I've really done bad with this, or I've really done bad with that. You know, New Year's resolutions are a good way to look back, right? A good way, or a good way to look forward or to see how many things you can mess up by setting all the New Year's resolutions, right? But there's got to be some kind of system, some kind of way that, that you can measure and you can see how things have developed. He says, teach us to number our days so that we can gain wisdom from that. Because through experience, we learn things. As you spend more and more time with God and his word, you get more experience, you're more skilled in the word. You can make discernment, uh, uh, you, you can discern things easier. You understand what God wants, what he desires. Your relationship with him is developed. You have a skilled heart. We all talk about lots of skills that a person might have, but what about moral and ethical skills of the heart? Those are what are important. The second prayer or the second part of the prayer that I uh, highlighted here is in verse 14 where it says, oh satisfy, oh, satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Now, verse 14 in my NLT, and we have this verse up in our living room, it says this, satisfy us each morning with your unfailing love so that we might sing for joy to the end of our days. That's one of my favorite verses in all the Psalms. It's also one of my, I think it's the key verse because it's my favorite verse. I think it's the key verse to the Psalm. Psalm 90, verse 14. Satisfy us each morning with your unfailing love so that we might sing for joy to the end of our days. Unfailing love found countless times throughout the scripture, countless times in the Psalms especially. The Lord's loyal, faithful love, his unfailing love. And we know his love is unfailing because if we just read the first six verses, we know that God is eternal and he is far above us. His love is able to satisfy our deepest needs, our deepest desires. Any, anything that we have, his love can handle it. And we've got to set our, each one of our days. We must learn to start it setting our eyes on him. And this is why. Because the alternative is entering into the day with a hungry soul. You don't want to enter into your day with a hungry soul. You say, yes, I'm hungry. And Lord, I know, I understand you, I'm with you. Uh, as soon as I get out of bed, I'm like, where's the food? I'm starving, I'm hungry. Because I've just been fasting for, you know, when I was sleeping, so I'm hungry. I need something for my body. But you don't want to go into the day with a hungry soul because the hungry soul will always seek satisfaction in something. And if you don't give it the word of God in the morning, it's going to seek satisfaction through the day and all the idols that are out there. And truly the greatest way to fight against idolatry is to feast on the Lord and his faithfulness when you get up in the morning. Now you might not spend your time when you get up in the morning. It might be in the afternoon or after you've had five or six cups of coffee to wake you up. Or maybe it's in the evening. But the idea is that you've got to enter into each day with our eyes set on him. And if we don't fill ourselves with him, then the world has a banquet of things that it would gladly like to fill our soul with. 
instead of, instead of him. And truly the greatest way to fight against idolatry is to feast on the Lord, to feast on his faithfulness. Psalm 37 uh, verse 3 also mentions that. But I love that. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love so we might sing for joy to the end of our days. Because when we learn to get satisfied in the unfailing love of God, we can do nothing but sing for joy to the end of our days. We realize what he did for us and we realize there's no reason why he should have done that for us, but yet he still did it for us. And just that alone should cause us to sing for joy to the end of our days. I mean, each day, each and every day, we have a gift, a gift to use it for God's glory. Then the third and, and the last one for our time tonight is in verse 17. In verse 17 it says, And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You know, I think we've all felt at one time or another, you know, is what I'm doing actually worth it? Or maybe from a civic perspective, you know, does my vote actually help? Does it even count for that much, you know? What I've done so far to my, in my life, is it really measuring up to where it should be? Is it really even worth doing some of these things? You know, God's works are perfect. We know that in every single aspect, but ours are not. In fact, if anything goes well in our world, if any goes well with the works of our hands, it's because of God's mercy and grace, not because of our abilities, because he's blessed that. And when God permits us to accomplish our goals, we, shouldn't, we should count it as a gift of his mercy, not something he owes us. In the same breath, I think sometimes we can place the wrong value on things that we do in our work. We ought to be more focused on working towards the things that God places value on. We all want, in the end, don't we, for our life, our works, the things that we have done in this life to matter, to be worth it. When we're just getting started in life, we want to do things that make our lives matter. We want to do things that we know will pass the times. We want to, uh, the term that we often, what is it, legacy. What's the legacy you want to pass back down? Um, because life is fleeting, as it says in this psalm, and it goes by really really, really quickly. And it's kind of, it's almost as if the psalmist is saying, what kind of legacy are you leaving behind for those that are coming up in your generation? What are we leaving behind for those? What are we trying to show the young ones how to live better? I mean, here's Moses. He's got a new generation that's coming into the promised land. And the book of Deuteronomy was written probably a few months before they get into the promised land because the older generation already knew about the law, about the sacrifices, about uh, the things that were expected of them. That's detailed in Exodus, Leviticus, and, and Numbers. But you got a new generation that's coming into the promised land. They have no idea. They don't know what to do. So Moses has to do a second reading of the law. That's why it's called the second law, Deuteronomy. Second law. Has to remind them and say, hey, when you get into the land, these are things that you have to to do. These are the things that you're responsible for. This is what God expects of you. 
These are the laws. These are the regulations. These are the things. So when we look at this psalm, just the fact that our life is brief, and whatever, whatever stage of life you're in, you can look back and say, Lord, I spent the last 20 years doing this. Please, please, please establish it, prosper it, make it work, make it worth it. Or maybe you're just getting started in life and you say, Lord, I want the next 20 years I spent to be prosperous. I want to grow from this. There's ways to look at it from either perspective. Over in the New Testament, um, Paul sums up this entire psalm, Psalm 90. If you write in your Bible next to Psalm 90, write this reference, Ephesians 5, 15 to 17. The whole psalm, Psalm 90, is all summed up in the New Testament in Paul's words. Ephesians 5, 15 to 17. Listen to what it says. See then that you walk circumspectly or wisely and not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Can't think of a better way to summarize that psalm than those words of Paul. Walk circumspectly. Walk with wisdom, not as fools, but as wise. Redeem the time, don't waste it. Therefore, don't be unwise, but understand what God's will is. And so this psalm is just a reminder to us that we don't know when our death date is. God knows when our death date is. He knows when he's going to take us. He knows the exact moment, the exact hour, the exact second. But until that time, this psalm is giving us a reminder that we just need to number our days so that we can gain that heart of wisdom. And by the way, it's not something that you all of a sudden get one day. Oh, I got a heart of wisdom and check that off my list. You know, it's something that takes time. Because even the most wisest man in the world, Solomon, made some really bad mistakes in the end of his life. He's, he's called, I call him the wisest fool, because he is, right? At the end of his life, he just knew what he was, wasn't supposed to do, but yet he decided to do it anyway. He, he truly wasn't paying attention, wasn't listening. Now, as we close this evening, um, I want, I've queued up a song. I haven't queued it up. Sound guys have queued it up, a song. And this song is about this psalm. Say that right. This song is about this psalm, okay? Um, and it's called uh, Satisfy Us. There's, there's, uh, it's a group that I've listened to before, and they put to music uh, a lot of the psalms. And uh, they've got three or four, I think, uh, in one of their current albums. Um, and this one talks about uh, Psalm 90 and satisfy us. And it's a great way. It's about five minutes. But as we're finishing for the evening, I just want you to sit there and just listen to the lyrics. Just reflect on this psalm. Um, and uh, when the song is done, uh, we'll pray and uh, we'll be dismissed. So if you go ahead and play it, part. You have been our dwelling place, oh, where?
Satisfy us with your 